Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the new episode of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, and I'm your host, Olga Breininger. Today, our guest is Jonathan Brooks-Platt of the University of Pittsburgh. Jonathan will be talking about his book, Cretans Pushkin, Stalinist Cultural Politics and the Russian National Bard, which was published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2016. In Cretans Pushkin, Platt focuses on the centennial celebrations of Pushkin's death in 1937 in the Soviet Union and shows how, through the figure of Pushkin, we can reconstruct the very complex sense of temporality and modernization specific of this period of Soviet history. Hello, Jonathan, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. We are very Hello. happy to have you with us today to talk about Greetings Pushkin, Stalinist Cultural Politics, and the Russian National Bard. All right. Sounds good. So how are you doing today? Oh, not so bad. It's Friday. Nice autumn weather in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and so is in Boston. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, we first ask our speakers about um, their background. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, about myself. Well, um, in terms of my um, career in Slavism, or just myself in general, <laughs> my um, broad biographical. Uh, we could we could do the broad biographical. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I don't know. I. Um, was born in the United States of America, and uh, I traveled around a lot uh, as, as a kid and as a young man, and I ended up um, uh, an undergraduate in uh, Berkeley, where I studied uh, Russian literature and language. I started going traveling to Russia then, it was 1996, it was the first time I went, uh, and I've spent many years living there since then. Um, I uh, did my graduate school at Columbia in New York. And um, after that, I went back to Russia for five years. I spent living in St. Petersburg, and I go to Petersburg a lot now, um, sometimes doing work with uh, sort of the leftist crowd, different artists, poets, and philosophers and on the left in, in Russia, but mostly in St. Petersburg. Uh, and in 2010, I got the job here in Pittsburgh, and I've been here ever since, uh, except for one year that I spent uh, on leave in, in Petersburg again. Um, I have two children, Isaac and Arkady. Um, I don't know. What else What else do you want to know? Um, maybe what got you interested in Russian studies? Mm-hmm. Um. I think uh, it's quite probably similar to a lot of people. You know, I read the classic 19th century novels in high school already. And uh, when I went to Berkeley, I basically um, uh, decided to study Russian so that I could read these books that I liked in the original and, and eventually go to Russia and see what it was like there. And uh, I never escaped that 17-year-old decision. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I've always had really good uh, professors at Berkeley. My main uh, professor was Olga Matic, uh, who, you know, was really inspiring. And, a- and after I left college, I moved to Russia and taught English for a couple of years. And, uh, but I don't know, uh, Olga kind of supported me in my idea of going to graduate school, uh, which was good. So, and then at Columbia, I studied under Boris Kasparov, uh, you know, who was amazing. Um, and I took, I think I took like nine classes with him. So it was pretty influential. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it ended up being the, the only job I could get after that educational <laughs> background. So I think I mentioned, um, in the preface to your book that it actually grew up off an undergraduate essay you wrote in Berkeley. So mm-hmm. has it been almost a 20 a year journey then with Pushkin? Yeah. And- 
Yeah, I mean, it really was. I mean, because I, I started, I don't know, I mean, it's kind of the, the logic behind the kind of uh, the analysis that I do started really with this paper I wrote for Olga Matic in, in Berkeley. Um, also, uh, Liza Knapp had a little bit of influence on it, I think, because she was the fir first person who told me to read Jakobson, and I had some kind of Jakobsonian metaphor and metonymy thing behind it. Um, but yeah, and that it just kind of evolved. I mean, it's also had all sorts of weird, I think I talk about in the preface how it has kind of personal, uh, uh, things like, you know, related to mood disorders and so on. <laughs> yeah, that is I, actually I, really powerful. Yeah. How I see myself as split between these kind of, uh, the, the, in the dissertation, it was ecstasy and elegy. And so this kind of mournful, uh, depressed phase versus the more ecstatic, Uh, manic phase, but uh, uh, I don't know. So, I mean, it, it's, it was kind of a, a long, I was just in, you know, diving into, it started with modernist prose, but uh, when I got to Colombia, I started getting interested in Stalinist culture and uh, um, yeah. So I was kind of using Stalinism as a, as a therapeutic, as a form of self therapy, I think uh, as much as producing a work of scholarship, which is kind of strange, but And I think that conceptually you moved quite far along from the metaphor and metonymy of Jakobson. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the uh, the theoretic fr framework of your book. Yeah, no, I mean it it, it evolved a lot. Um, I mean the the metaphor and metonymy thing was was kind of the what I what I did with it is a um, I talked in terms of heroism, right? So I was I think I was looking at I was comparing the the prose. I mean, mostly it was, the paper was about the prose of Pasternak and, and the early prose of Nabokov um, as being unheroic in its metonymic uh, thrust, that there's a kind of reluctance to uh, to pursue this, you know, what Jakobson would associate with metaphors, this kind of uh, uh, more vertical uh, unification of, of, of ideas that, you know, I think he, he relates to Mayakovsky mostly. Uh, but anyway, that, that kind of really persisted um, in, in a, a kind of, this approach to the 1937 Jubilee as, um, you know, trying to understand how it was both a revolutionary event, uh, both a continuation of the radical revolutionary impulse of, of uh, Soviet society, but at the same time also uh, an attempt to, you know, follow broader trends in, in, in Europe at the time and, and sort of anchor the new Soviet culture to... Uh, to the past uh, in ways that had been resisted uh, uh, in the previous years. Um, and so it kind of, uh, which, which has, you know, his, in the history of, of the Soviet Union, uh, uh, Stalinism in particular has been kind of seen as, as a kind of retreat from, um, you know, the, uh, the universalist kind of uh, utopianism of, of, of the, the revolution of 1917 and, and avant-garde culture and, and a lot of different things like that. And so I, kind of what I was trying to do is, was see how in, actually you could find um, two different attitudes, and I, and I look at them in terms of uh, temporality in the, in the book. Um, where, and, you know, the final name for the, uh, the two different types of temporality, or, or I talk about them as chronotopes using Bakhtin, um, is monumentalism and eschatology also problematic in some in many ways. And people always jump on me for using the word eschatology, which doesn't fit. Uh, if we, if we look at it in it's, in it's sort of, um, you know, prototypical meaning. Uh, but basically what I, what I, what I do is I, I talk about how Pushkin, I mean, the simplest way of describing it is saying that Pushkin simultaneously is, is sort of living on as a monument, uh, that is kind of who's, Um, you know, our memory of, of the past, of this, this moment of foundation, this moment of origin, uh, of, you know, the creation of the Russian literary language, all these kind of monumental achievements that are associated with Pushkin that, that, uh, we kind of, uh, as a culture, we preserve, uh, that memory. We return again and again to that sort of, uh, core of value in our culture in order to sort of anchor, uh, our identity as we move forward in time. Uh, and that's sort of the monumentalist approach, uh, Where, but at the same time, Pushkin also is kind of living again, right? He's not just living on, but he's, he's living again a new uh, existence that is radically different from his own time, from his own life, that in some ways Pushkin is only, uh, his legacy only really has come into being with, uh, 
with, you know, the Stalinist constitution of 1936 or the revolution or, or uh, however you want to mark that, the, this fiery kind of apocalyptic threshold where the past, you know, has kind of, has been judged now, uh, which is a model that, that uh, Buddy Skrois uses in, in his Stalin book. Um, but that, uh, so some, some figures of the past are now consigned to the dustbin of history while, while others are brought forward in this kind of, uh, uh, this leap across time um, with through all sorts of different devices, uh, showing Pushkin as being prophetically aware of the future revolution to come, the future society, um, you know, having artistic representations of Soviet people jumping back into time to, to rescue Pushkin uh, from his untimely death, things like that. All sorts of different ways that they, they figure this. Uh, and I call it eschatological in the sense that there is a, I mean, partially because it has this apocalyptic quality to it, uh, but also uh, because it, it posits a kind of a different dimension of time from sort of linear everyday um, uh, kind of, you know, clocks and calendars time uh, that can be, that is founded on, on prin- a principle of rupture, right? So that we can have some kind of um, extra temporal connection to Pushkin. Uh, we can imagine fusing our own uh, revolutionary horizon with the horizon of his, his uh, much darker time that was much further away from the revolutionary moment, but have some kind of uh, contact with him as our, um, as a sort of, you know, a man, someone who fought for the same thing that we are fighting for and that we have achieved. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, I mean, the, the, the book kind of, um, that's the sort of overarching, um, you know, uh, argument of the book is that both of these things are happening simultaneously. Um, sometimes they're even fused in weird ways, uh, so like the, the classic, the, the central metaphor or image in the book is, is that of Pushkin as a living statue where you get both of these kind of, uh, um, attitudes to time simultaneously. On the one hand, he's this permanent, uh, monumental figure. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's a living thing. It's not just, it's not like a, a normal monument, which is kind of hollow and, and requires, you know, the attention of the, of the crowd gathered around it to sort of, uh, give it an illusion of, of life, this metaphorical living on in our, in our hearts or our memories or whatever. Um, but with, when the, the statue actually comes to life, typically in scenes where it's like communicating with the contemporary, um, Soviet people, joining them in the celebrations or, or like you'll have pictures of children reading Pushkin's poems to a statue of Pushkin, this kind of interesting tautological, <laughs> uh, image. Uh, that uh, there you are also getting this this uh, figure of you know Pushkin emerging from eternity into our present or or descending from from some other realm into our uh, to join us um, in our contemporary struggle um, and and that's what I describe as eschatological. So, but but then alongside that, I also you know theoretical parts. I, every chapter kind of adds uh, little bits of of other. Um, things usually revolving around the question of, of modernity. I, I look at these attitudes to time in terms of uh, the discourse of modernity and how uh, both uh, monumentalism and eschatology go back, you know, to the to um, antiquity, but uh, as as ways of, of thinking about the modern, right? Uh, that, that the modern is not doesn't just start with the Renaissance or or the French Revolution or whatever you want to say. Uh, it, it, as a concept, it goes back to, uh, to late antiquity and, and Rome and this kind of idea of what is our time and what is the relationship of our time to, for example, the, the great past, uh, of, you know, the, the legacy of the past or, or as you get into more medieval, uh, times, the, towards this kind of, um, end that's coming. Uh, and the way I, I, I talk about it is that, um, these, these two attitudes, uh, in the period that we call uh, modernity or, or Nove Vremia in, in, in the Neuzeit in, in uh, other languages, um, is uh, they become ambivalent to themselves. So you cannot no longer you can't really relate your the contemporary modern moment, the, our time, our the, the threshold of the now, to some kind of static, uh, fixed past or eternal realm uh, that will you know eventually come to uh, occupy. Uh, to replace our, our sort of profane temporality and eschatological model, that those 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 external kind of that external past or that external future uh, cease to um, kind of 
they, they can't really uh, dominate the present like they used to. The present acquires its own special value, and you start to get these weird interactions where uh, you can... So in sort of modern, properly modern monumentalism, you return to the past in order to anchor... Uh, you return again and again. You have to keep going back. You get this kind of iterative quality where you have to keep going back to this kind of moment of origin that isn't, doesn't really uh, have a kind of um, uh, clear uh, substance... Uh, and 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 you go back in order to then go forward again, in order to sort of preserve identity as you go forward. Whereas, and the eschatological model and its ambivalence becomes this kind of uh, similarly iterative kind of um, need to constantly uh, introduce ruptures in time in order to sort of you know an avant-garde model, for example, to to avoid reification, to avoid uh, automatized perception or so on. You have to sort of uh, introduce these 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 ruptures. Uh, uh, you know. Uh, the um, the love of novelty, of sort of flashes of the new. You have you know Baudelaire's definition of of the modern as as this uh, uh, as related to to fashion, uh, where you you know specifically as a kind of um, you know flashing of the eternal within within the present. Um, that that's that's his definition of of, of modern. That you get this weird um, kind of ambivalent. Uh, juncture or, or, or connection between these two two levels of time, and both of them are very similar in their in their kind of dialectical interplay, uh, and that's what allows them to be, uh, in, in my analysis, to be naively quite naively combined, even though they would seem to be uh, opposed to one another. Uh, but yeah, but so each of the chapter adds little things like that. So you know, I talk about uh, Claude Lefort's um, you know description of 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 modernity as this kind of uh, evacuation of the place of power that that, that uh, uh, used to, um, you know, anchor uh, the social uh, uh, in pre-modern times. I, I have, um, you know, I, I talk about uh, theories of, of nation, nationhood, um, and how that applies to the specific kind of, of, uh, of interest in the past and in, the, in a national past. Uh, that uh, that you get with the Pushkin Jubilee, um, and and you know, and a lot of other things as well. So, I mean, it's a it's a it's it's it has a very specific question to it, but it, I I I hope that it's it's broad enough to to be interesting to a lot of people who are who are looking at these kind of questions about um, you know how the modern is being constructed in the interwar period and and the Soviet Union, particularly how it is a kind of um, uh, you know, the way I talk about it, that Stalinism and Stalinism in, in many ways for me is, is the kind of, um, you know, it's, you can look at it as an aberration, as a kind of betrayal of the revolution. And, and I think, you know, we have to do that in many ways, but it's all, it also is kind of a, um, an expected outcome, you could say, uh, as the revolutionary state tries to become its own kind of polity, tries to sort of, um, uh, you know, follow this policy of socialism in one country uh, and with that to declare itself as a kind of modern state as, a, as some alternative to, to, to capitalism, to the West uh, that, you know, but also, uh, you know, takes things from the West and re reshapes them in, in its own way, purifies them maybe uh, of, of certain uh, bourgeois, um, you know, uh, contagion <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, so that's, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do is, is say how, show how kind of, uh, the way the revolutionary, uh, uh, society, uh, develops into this, um, particular form in the 1930s is, you know, can be seen as an attempt to kind of solve, uh, this impossible task that modernity sets us, this task of sort of, um, you know, uh, simultaneously feeling like we are at the cusp of some epochal moment that, that our moment matters in some special way, uh, but also then uh, being uh, conscious of, of the fact that our moment is just a, a momentary threshold, um, you know, between the past and the future. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, so it's kind of a, it can, it can be seen as, as a, as a, you know, detailed description of this, of this event, uh, or taking that as a case study for the Stalinist period, uh, the, the pre-war Stalinist period as a whole, or something, something even bigger, theoretically, uh, looking at how, 
the discourse of modernity really sends uh, sends us for loops <laughs> that uh, if you really put your uh, put your mind to it, you can uh, get tangled up in all sorts of interesting double think and uh, um, make some crazy images. So. Well, there is definitely a lot to talk about here, but probably while we are on the modernity, something I wanted to ask you is that you mentioned at some point in the book that uh, you think that with the Jubilee case, the return to Pushkin was uh, a modernization project, but also a project which demonstrated that Stalinist period had a much more complicated temporal logic to it. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. What were the implications of this modernist project? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. That's kind of what I was just talking about. But, uh, you know, the in terms of modernization, you, I mean, so you can talk about, I mean, a lot of um, discussion of the Jubilee comes in hand, comes uh, in the context of discussions of a kind of uh, Russo-centric turn that you get in the, in the 1930s, uh, which bears, you know, resemblance to a certain kind of... Uh, um, you know, a uh, turn towards nationalism of, of one kind or another, although it's very specific in the, in the Soviet case because it's, <clears throat> it still has this imperial uh, structure in many ways. Um, but, uh, um, you know, so the general idea is that nationalism goes hand in hand with modernization because uh, it um, leads, it promotes the kind of creation of a, or the homogenization of, of the, of society. Um, so, you start, um, you know, you, if you create a literary canon, it means everyone in school is reading the same books, right? If you, uh, and, and through those books, they, they develop a, a sort of literary language, a norm for, for communicating. Um, and this allows, uh, people to be more, um, flexible, more mobile in moving around uh, in different industries, for example, that you can kind of expect the same general kind of person, uh, as you modernize your, your country. And, and instead of having people, you know, uh, um, differentiated from one another by uh, dialectical regional differences and so on that that are more common in in a, in a kind of imperial uh, structure. So so that so so for, so in terms of modernization, this monumentalist uh, aspect of the jubilee would be more um, would be the thing you would expect more uh, because again, it's like Pushkin becomes this kind of core of value that everyone can return to and and derive uh, you know a, a sense of identity from, but by participating in this, uh, event, people are, um, you know, they're basically voting yes to be Russians. Uh, and when the non-Russian people do, they're kind of uh, asserting the kind of, um, in some ways, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, you could say the universal, uh, significance of Russian culture, uh, which is something that you get very common. It's very common with national poet cults that they are, uh, simultaneously kind of, uh, uh, inclusionary and exclusionary. So they become part of a civilized, civilizing mission for the, for the national culture that produces them. So everyone should read Shakespeare, uh, especially the, our colonies in India. Um, but at the same time, they're exclusionary in the sense that only the people in the core national culture can, uh, can get every nuance, right? Because it speaks to them in, in some kind of special way. And you get that very much in the, in the, in the Jubilee, um, in the Pushkin Jubilee where, um, there's there's uh, a certain degree to which um, the celebration is meant to encourage Russian speakers uh, and and ethnic Russians even, but it's more more of a cultural thing rather than an ethnic thing. Uh, but that Russian culture is, is you know we can now be proud of our of our heritage and we can incorporate that into our uh, our socialist uh, identity. Um, but at the same time, all the other republics uh, in the Soviet Union uh, should be joining with us in celebration. <coughs> um, so, but, so that's the, the modernization thing, but it, the reason, the, the degree to which I'm saying it's more complicated is, is that uh, the, this model only works up to a point and then you get all these other things that come in. So for example, the, the, even the way they, they emphasize the, you know, the importance to Russians, there's this extreme, there's this real defensive quality to it because uh, for a long time, uh, in the years before the Jubilee, uh, Russian culture is specifically kind of, um, you know, you have a kind of, you know, what, what, uh, Terry Martin calls affirmative action policies, right? That there's this kind of, um, uh, anxiety about, um, any kind of Russian patriotic discourse, um, that the, the, the task is, is to emphasize diversity in the union and that while, 
uh, events like the Pushkin Jubilee would seem to suggest a move away from that. You can find all sorts of ways in which they, they, the, a lot of the participants, um, specifically will resist this, this, uh, Russocentric picture of Pushkin. And in some way, Pushkin will be pushed towards a, a fully universal, totally translatable into any kind of language that because, uh, he's associated with the socialist, uh, culture, uh, he kind of goes beyond, uh, other national poets as into some kind of, um, um, you know, a kind of image that you, you get once in a while. You'll have this pantheon of, of great, um, writers and artists, uh, that, uh, will make up the, um, the utopian sort of reading list of, of world communism and Pushkin will be the first one in the list. Um, and that's not out of Russian patriotism, but in some ways just because, uh, Russia made it to socialism first and therefore, uh, its culture is going to be kind of reshaped and, and reworked, um, in this, this very non-monumental fashion, very much about, uh, a kind of, uh, Mm-hmm. purging of the past of its of its um you know what errors um it, it might have committed and so on and in order to make it uh fit with the present um so so yeah so i mean it's it's that's i mean that's basically the the logic of of the whole thing is that uh i on one on the one hand i'll show how it fits this general model of some kind of interwar modernization project that you get going on so like the nazis are having a giant celebration of schiller in 1934 um, you know, uh, that this is not, um, a specifically Soviet, uh, thing that's going on. Um, and in general, the, the phenomenon of having jubilees for national poets goes back to the 18th century. Um, but that because of this, the revolutionary content of, of, of the uh, events, it takes on this kind of, um, slightly, um, you know, this, this split character, schizophrenic, you could say, but, uh, where it's vacillating between these, um, what you would seem to be a more, uh, expected, um, legitimizing, uh, turn to Pushkin as a monumental figure and this kind of, uh, strange, um, you know, interest in leaping over time and, and, uh, bringing Pushkin back to life in some kind of a radical new form and imagining him longing for that in the past and all these different things that they do, um, in order to make that feeling of some kind of specific, um, connection outside of time between, uh, Pushkin and, and the present. Um, but, uh, yeah. so in your second chapter, you are talking about, um, various pedagogical texts and practices. And is there anything striking you found about the role of Pushkin and place of Pushkin in teaching in the 1930s? Yeah. Well, I mean, what I, what I discovered, um, uh, that I found quite interesting was that, that literature had always been very problematic in, in early Soviet education, that, that in many periods when they tried to push more radical pedagogical, uh, agenda, they actually would cut literature. They would never, they wouldn't have a chronological sort of, uh, history of, of Russian literature or world literature. They would just use literary texts, uh, here and there to illustrate, um, more socioeconomic kind of, uh, uh, topics. And, uh, uh, but then whenever they would find that those utopian kind of radical practices weren't working in some way, that they were too difficult to, to implement and so on, they would retreat to, you know, using that word retreat, but they would kind of uh, withdraw from that and, and go to something more traditional uh, and then introduce a literature um, class, a proper literature class um, uh, along with that. So literature had this kind of uh, intrinsically conservative uh, quality in, in the Soviet schools that, that like part of what, inventing a new school was about would, would be to get rid of that kind of idea of a literary canon, um, which makes sense in terms of all this, this stuff about um, monumentalism that I've been talking about, that there's a kind of um, tendency to, to want to, an iconoclastic tendency in, in early Soviet culture that wants to resist that. <clears throat> but what, what happens in the Jubilee is that you have this massive um, kind of intrusion of Pushkin into the, into the schools and all sorts of um, performative uh, methods that they do to bring Pushkin to life, right? Um, and a lot of education, you know, pedagogues, pedag- pedagogical sort of uh, leaders in the field and so on were using the events to put forward a kind of new way of doing literature, one that actually isn't that different from, from things that were going on in the West, um, and, and in many ways, which is still, um, you know... Um, um, relevant in, in, I think, in literature teaching, although 
at least it was when I was when I was in school. Um, but where you look at at books as a kind of um, an entryway into life, right? That there's a kind of experience of a text that you get uh, that sort of um, prepares you for for true for real experiences, kind of virtual testing ground or something. Um, and what so what they what that meant is they had to emphasize emotional response over everything else. That um, so if you if in uh, earlier times when when you would read, and this is even in those in those more conservative periods when they, when you would read uh, the literary canon, it's filled with all sorts of anxiety about uh, the dangers of these old texts that they're going to have uh, the wrong ideology and the children are going to get confused, and and so the textbooks are filled with all sorts of criticism of the thing that you're reading. So if you can imagine, I mean, how um, nice it would be to be reading Pushkin, and then you know the next thing you have to do is learn how to say that he was a you know he was an aristocrat and he had uh, um, you know, uh, reactionary ideas about um, the peasants, which you can see in certain works. And after 1825, he became a, you know, a, a, a toady for the czars and, and, and so on. And then you're supposed to also at the same time be reading this stuff and, and getting something out of it. Um, that that was finally put to bed uh, in, in the 30s around the time of the Jubilee, around when the first announcement of uh, the Jubilee came out in, in 1935. Um, Actually, already in '34, it started even earlier. But it, it, the the main campaign in the school starts at the end of '35. Um, they and this um, these methods that they would use, all these different kinds, you know, this kind of embodying the text through, um, you know, this what is usually this uh, expressive reading, um, doing all sorts of art projects, uh, theatrical productions. You, know, you get kind of bizarre things like, uh, you know, I have this one picture of uh, a gymnastics thing where they spelled the kids get into position spelling out Pushkin's name. And you get a, all of this kind of, uh, the way I talk about it is in terms of a kind of, uh, the students are turned into these kind of militant, uh, you know, um, um, kind of figures who are uh, resurrecting Pushkin. Like that's their main task is sort of using their, um, um, their passion and their dedication um, and their, you know, uh, um, enthusiasm for, for socialism to, uh, rescue Pushkin from the dark past, uh, and all those, those dangerous things that, that would have been criticized in, you know, five, 10 years before, um, just to kind of lift him out of that darkness and, and shower him with, with socialist love, uh, transforming him. So, uh, and that kind of, these kind of, uh, this kind of, the use of these kind of practices, um, these kind of performative pedagogical practices, uh, and especially jubilees, uh, really, you know, became a standard uh, method uh, and allowed for, in general, for the reintroduction of more um, kind of uh, traditional literary historical um, um, curriculum because you could constantly, you know, perforate that, the study of literature as history, uh, with these kind of performative, resurrective uh, um, uh, activities, right? So you uh, you learn about uh, Pushkin, but then you make a um, you know a model of the duel where you kind of uh, and, and and it fills you with such um, sadness to see him about to get shot that you uh, uh, are are sort of drawn to rescue Pushkin <laughs> from the duel. <laughs> rip him out of the model and so on and put him somewhere else. But anyway, so, 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 so that's the kind of thing that it, they found a technique that allowed them to kind of get over the old anxieties about, about canonical literature. Um, and it really had a, a major impact on, on how things were taught in school. Now, of course, uh, you know, the, the militant um, passion of, of the Soviet Union doesn't last very long after the war. And, um, you know, a lot of these things become exactly what people who remember the Soviet Union consider to be like the most mind numbing, uh, aspects of Soviet education, memorizing poems and, uh, and things like that, and having to, you know, make these albums for, for you know, pay, putting newspaper clippings and so on into albums for, for Jubilee dates. Um, um, uh, but, but, you know, the, the idea was, was progressive at the time and, and, and was seen as a way to sort of brew militancy in the, in the, the children specifically, um, uh, in this case, specifically with regard to the pre-revolutionary literary past. So, 
And how about the intellectuals? Um, you write in um, Chapter 3 about the <coughs> academic writing about Pushkin, and it seems that uh, the scholars also had some problems, you know, situating Pushkin in the temporality, and you bring Vinogradov as one of the more successful examples of it? Yeah, well, Vinogradov is weird because he, uh, basically the way I talk about it, his um, two-volume, you know, his massive two-volume two volume, uh, book on Pushkin's, language and Pushkin style is that uh, he really has this kind of nationalist, monumentalist approach, right? And it's it's completely, it's not actually um, uh, tempered with anything, any of this other stuff, this relevance of Pushkin for our times. He's not talking about why Pushkin is relevant to, to socialist society uh, uh, because uh, he really, you know, I'm ta- he says, you know, I'm, I'm writing about the nat- Russian national poet and what he did with the Russian language, and that is something that will be relevant for all times, uh, no matter what shape our, our, um, our, you know, country takes. Uh, and, you know, and he got persecuted. He was, you know, uh, um, uh, accused of, of nationalist uh, sort of connections, uh, of, a, of a right-wing sort of heresy uh, in a fabricated case. But, you know, there's, there's clearly... Um, you know, some truth to, to the association of him with that kind of, uh, uh, thinking. Um, but, uh, but the, the reason I use him kind of as a, as a setup for, for the people that I'm more interested in, uh, who do try to address this, who do try to bring in this alternative temporality, this more eschatological, um, temporality based on rupture and, 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 and association of, of the, the past with the present. Um, so, but, but there, my main, um, I, the the main sort of theoretical, um, um, sort of addition is, uh, Ranciere, um, and this idea of modern literature as having, as, as practicing a different kind of politics, um, which you find in various, um, people like Lydia Ginsburg writing in the thirties around the time of the Jubilee, um, and some other people, uh, you get this um, willing, uh, this this sort of um, uh, a kind of uh, what what would have been rare, very rare, or even impossible in, in in previous years. This this willingness to say that Pushkin was not uh, a political poet, right? Primarily, um, that in fact he um, withdraws from uh, politics after eighteen twenty five. Uh, you know, separates himself from the Decemberists in order to produce a kind of aesthetic vision uh, that has a different kind of political um, efficacy or significance, which is, you know, interesting, very similar to the kind of things that Ranciere says. Um, so the, in, in terms of um, temporality, the way it, it, it works out usually is that that withdrawal that Pushkin has to make from, from the sort of politics of wills, the politics of sort of, of trying to influence, um, uh, you know, the, the state specifically, or, or even, uh, uh, overthrow the czar, uh, that you get with the Decemberists, uh, and with their poetry, uh, that Pushkin withdraws from that into this more, um, kind of flat, uh, I mean, generally the way it's talked about is that you can, that the, instead of having a hierarchical, a genre system or a hierarchy of different styles that you get this kind of single um, vision of things and, and anything can be incorporated into a literary work uh, regardless of its sort of um, its high, its sort of loftiness or its, or its baseness. Um, and that you get this kind of democratic vision that is, that has a political uh, quality to it in the fact, simply from the fact that it is no longer uh, supporting a kind of hierarchy of, uh, of, um, of styles and of types of speech. Um, so the idea though, is that for Pushkin, that, that comes as a kind of tragedy that he, uh, experiences this, um, this withdrawal from politics as part of the tragedy of his life. And that, you know, he's, uh, um, you know, increasingly sort of, 
uh, finds himself increasingly embroiled in different contradictions and so on. But then that tragedy has this, this revolutionary potential because we are the fulfillment of it. We are the redemption uh, of that past. So in, in, in some ways, Pushkin creates this modern uh, vision, this democratic vision, but it, it doesn't, it actually isolates him from, from society because the society is so backwards that it can't sort of take advantage of it. But we are, now that the, the workers are liberated and the workers know how to read, um, or peasants, uh, for that matter, that uh, that that um, that moment of of uh, aesthetic um, innovation, or whatever you want to call it, uh, is finally being realized as uh, as its its political efficacy is finally um, being realized uh, today. So in 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 the way that uh, that we read it. So it's it's again it's a it's a kind of similar thing. Uh, it's you know focusing on this. I mean the eschatological part really tends to focus on on how the builders of socialism, how the contemporary Soviet reader, um, actually uh, how that presence this this kind of um, this encounter between Pushkin and the Soviet reader is itself transformative uh, of Pushkin. Um, so and you get that in scholarly. Uh, works as in as in the things people were doing in schools. So. And how about uh, visual arts, performance, or film? So how did the image of Pushkin arise in these genres during the Jubilee celebrations? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I talk about a lot of different things. I talk about uh, paintings and uh, monumental sculpture, um, historical novels, uh, historical films that were made for the Jubilee. Um, there's some plays that I talk about, poetry, lyric poetry as well. Um, and then, you know, each, each thing has a, has a slightly different, um, uh, set of questions associated with it. Um, so I don't know. So for example, the, the question of monumental sculpture, uh, that generally you have this tendency to kind of, um, resist the very, you know, the kind of essence of a monument, which is its permanence and its sort of stasis as this kind of, um, you know, um, this object that, uh, that the, the people gather around and, and uh, focus their attention on giving them a kind of uh, collective identity. Instead, the kind of monuments of Pushkin that were popular and the, they had a lot of um, competitions to design a, a new monuments, uh, none of which were actually uh, realized, but uh, they would show they show Pushkin moving in, in various ways, like he's windswept, or I mean, it's 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 uh, recognizable from <laughs> from Stalinist uh, uh, from Soviet sculpture generally, uh, especially from the late the later part of the thirties when you get a little bit more um, things get a little more windswept. Uh, if you think of uh, Worker and Collective Farm Girl or something, um, but. Uh, so there's so there's that this kind of weird um, need to <clears throat> make the monument itself look like it's kind of um, um, it's alive and not and, and moving and not just uh, a, a static fixed image um, and they have all sorts of different ways of, of 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 talking about how that could be achieved. None of them really are convincing visually, but the the discourse itself is is fascinating. Um, you get other things. I mean, in painting, you get a, a similar problem where you have a, a lot of historical portraits of Pushkin um, try to show him in this uh, this moment, this kind of moment of confrontation with with his the tragedy that I was talking about before, right? Or so, like he will, um, you know, you have a like a painting where he meets Dantes in the in the Lietnisad or something, um, and he's just kind of appears all shocked and, and frozen. And, and they, what's interesting is that the, the critics would always attack these kinds of, of paintings um, because they, they drain the life out of Pushkin's face or something. They have this kind of fascination with, with how you would make Pushkin's uh, living features uh, directly visible uh, to viewers today. Um, and people tried some really weird things. There's this one painting uh, by this woman, Nadezhda uh, uh, Radlova, uh, where she paints Pushkin with this really broad, toothy smile, uh, standing on the Neva embankment. Um, and he looks basically like he's posing for a photograph. So you get this very anachronistic feeling, even though he's dressed in his, you know, Pushkinian garb with his hat and cane and everything. Um, it looks like he's smiling directly at us. And so you get that, you get the, you know, it's these similar tensions 
that you're trying attempts to do portraiture, attempts to to reflect history, to to Im- embed us in Pushkin's own time, but at the same time, some kind of attempt, usually unsuccessful, but uh, what matters is the fact that it's there to make the image resonate with the present, to to make it um, have some kind of um, you know, memory of the future, you could say, right? Some kind of sense that the of of how things are going to change and, and how things will be um, transformed. The best is this uh, painting by um, um, blanking on his name, Ulyanov. Um, I think, although that's Lenin. Anyway, doesn't matter. The, it's it's a famous painting that probably everyone has seen. Um, where uh, Pushkin is is sort of standing in front of a mirror with his with with his wife at a at a ball, and he's dressed in his kameryunker um, uniform, and you have in the reflection in the mirror the staircase kind of going up uh, with all these sort of grandees, um, you know, court figures, um, kind of glaring at Pushkin uh, with with. Um, with great hostility. Um, and Pushkin is kind of turning his head. Um, and you, so you see like one eye as he's turning back and the eye is of course looking at the viewer. Um, but you know, technically he's looking at these guys that we see in the mirror, but it creates this very strange effect where it's like, it's almost like he's looking back at us and sharing his disgust at these people with, with the contemporary viewer of the painting. Uh, and it creates this very weird, uh, effect where the, his head is kind of, uh, the only thing that has proper perspective, everything else is kind of more flattened by the mirror um, uh, effect. Um, but, you know, it ends up looking like this mirror is a painting within the painting. Um, and we're we're sharing in this kind of effect of fused horizons where like Pushkin and us, can, we know, we're in the know about how terrible these, these, um, these lackeys of the czar were. Um, so you get all sorts of things like that. Uh, and, you know, but... Uh, but I, t- I separated basically. I, I, I talk about um, visual imagery. Well, not, not visual imagery, but sort of um, static imagery versus time-based um, um, imagery. So I put film and, and historical novels together, um, whereas the monuments and the paintings are in, are in a separate chapter. Um, but, but when you get into the historical stuff, it becomes a lot more difficult. Uh, to create that that fusion of, of horizons because you would have to kind of put a contemporary figure back in the history somehow. Um, because you, if you're trying to actually show the evolution of Pushkin as a character, as, as a historical figure, um, it's quite difficult. So and what happens there that I, that I talk about is, is Pushkin ends up getting... Uh, the tragedy comes to the fore that you feel that he's stranded there. That's kind of, they do it through negation, basically that you get this feeling that Pushkin is kind of caught in this, uh, this um, backwards time and desperately needs to be rescued. Um, And then the, the film or the novel will end uh, usually with just that feeling that we, you know, that Pushkin is moving forward, but he's moving forward towards us. Um, um, Who will be the, uh, you know, the final redemption of, of all the horrible stuff that he had to go through. So, um, so let hmm? me ask one last question about the book. Um, in your final chapter, you're sort of giving a reader a ride through 20th century Russian literature, showing how the memory and the legacy of the Jubilee persisted in it. So maybe you could summarize some important points of the journey for us and also talk about your meeting with Prigov, which was a very exciting episode in that chapter. <laughs> oh, oh, you mean from the preface? The Prigov? Well, yeah, I mean, basically, I just, I, I, I mean, my general, um, you know, approach to Stalinist culture is that the... Um, you know, like I said before, the militant uh, energy of the revolution basically doesn't last beyond the war. Um, that, you know, late Stalinist culture is a very different animal from, from Stalinist culture in the 30s, that you kind of lose this um, this willingness, this militant kind of uh, passion. Um, basically meaning that uh, you're willing to kind of go the distance in, in um, you know, uh, exploring these kind of crazy things like this, this attempt to fuse these different attitudes to time that you get on the Jubilee. Um, and so instead what you get, so I talk about, um, uh, some, 
some sort of 70s era writing by uh, Trish and Lavinis Gandier about their own childhood. Uh, um, they're quite biographical texts about their own childhood and the uh, and experience of the Jubilee and how this, this, this knowledge of the kind of the stale, um, the way official culture became so stale after the war, um, colors the, the memory of those, of, of the events. Um, and, and focuses, uh, so like in Trifinov's case, he focuses specifically on this, uh, this, the, his, the, the kid in the story, uh, has to make an, uh, a Pushkin album for the Jubilee. And he's like cutting, he's like ruining books, cutting out pictures from books. But then the glue he has is so, is bad and it kind of, uh, seeps through the pictures and it looks terrible. And then he like misspells something, uh, you know, and he gets, he gets no prize or, or respect for his, for his project. Um, but then this is linked to, uh, it's a, it comes to him in the book as a flashback of the book is the Shiznavinia disappearance. Um, which is a lot, part of it is about his, um, his, uh, father getting persecuted during the purges. Um, but <clears throat> it, it, it's a flashback from where he's in during the war where he's like painting, uh, banners or slogans or something. And he also makes a spelling mistake. But uh, during the in the war, his I think it's his sister. Someone is there with him. Says like, no one's even going to notice. No one even looks at these slogans anymore. Um, so you get this kind of weird uh, image of a, of a person who was actually you know really invested in the in the Pushkin Jubilee, who was like wanted to get a prize, wanted to do these things that they were telling him to do, but it was too difficult. That there was some kind of um, you know uh, just just the that you couldn't produce these hybrid. Uh, structures without, you know, incredible kind of, um, um, you know, without, you know, I mean, it's true of even the elite works that everything is kind of failing um, as it tries to um, produce these, these hyper structures. It's very rare that you get uh, works that actually succeed, succeed in doing it. And that creates a lot of suffering in the person who is actually, uh, you know, um, following this kind of militant model and, and is trying to do what, what, what you're supposed to do uh, and resurrect the, the past and, and, uh, and, you know, redeem the tragedy and all these different things. But if you fail to do it, you feel pretty bad. Um, and uh, so you get this. So basically, you know, the idea is that after, after the war itself, you know, this, this, and maybe probably already during it, you get people are, uh, um, you know, not willing to put that kind of investment into things um, because you know it's 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 just not nice when it when it uh, backfires, um, and so so it becomes stale. It becomes more ritualized, and so on. Um, and then I kind of move forward to to the conceptualist, like to Perigov, uh as this kind of weird inverse, kind of still militant, uh, um, um, you know, uh, tendency where uh, they kind of it's like it's almost like the Stalinist. Um, you know, the, the moment when Stalinism was still really alive in the 1930s, it's really been lost. It's been forgotten because of all this um, decline in militancy that you get in the, you know, 30, whatever, 30 years, 30, 40 years between. Um, and uh, Prigov is basically sort of, it's like he's discovering these little bits of, uh, of Pushkin uh, imagery uh, and picking them up and sort of identifying himself with them. Um, uh, and, you know, and this, the, the story, I, I kind of even fits with that because the, basically when I was writing my master's thesis with, uh, Kathleen Napomnishi at, at Columbia, um, I, I was focusing at the, at that time on the pedagogical stuff on how, um, Pushkin changed the way literature was taught in the schools. And Kathy had this thing where like, you always had to get native informants for any project, um, because it's, it's important to. To, to know these people in the first place, but also you want to, you know, get around and, and with your ideas and so on. Uh, and for instance, you know, uh, it was Kathy, it was, you know, the best idea was always to interview famous people. Um, so she had me interview uh, Prigov when he was staying at her house because he'd come to, to Columbia for a reading. And I didn't even know who he was really at the time. It was like my first year in graduate school. And so I was just using him as a native informant and asking him how he, like, uh, um, how, what he remembered about learning, studying Pushkin in school. Um, and he was like, really didn't understand what was going on. And he was like, I didn't read Pushkin. I played with tanks and airplanes, you know, like other little boys. <laughs> uh, what are you talking about? And then it finally got so frustrated that he just started reading, reciting his Pushkin poems. Um, and that it's kind of interesting because you, like I was asking him to, 
to take this kind of metaposition uh, uh, towards his biography and sort of just, you know, to tell the story of, 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 you know, or of history of, of Soviet history and so on. Um, but the, the truth is what it has to be kind of embodied. It has to be a performance um, of these, these peculiar, um, this peculiar uh, kind of uh, signifier that, that Pushkin becomes uh, in the Stalinist period. Um, and, and that's, and so it's, it becomes kind of like this, he is doing a similar thing to what the, uh, the children do in, 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 in effect in the, in, during the Jubilee in, as a kind of militant, he's sort of bringing this, this dead Stalinist signifier back to life, um, in his Pushkin poems. So, and, you know, and then, you know, I, I talk about, uh, Mamin's film, Buck and Body Sideburns, where, uh, you get a kind of that that idea of playing of playful identification over identification that, that we associate with still um, loses its kind of uh, slipperiness and it no longer functions. So you have in that, in that film, this interesting moment when the, the main character who has been, you know, dressing up as Pushkin and, and getting other people to join a kind of uh, paramilitary Pushkin organization to take over this town that, it, that the, the newspaper prints, like they, they, they end up beating up the, the people at a demonstration and the newspaper compares him to Hitler and it, it, it makes him cry because in a sense, this, this, uh, identification, this over identification with Pushkin, it, it's not, it's, it's, it's always meant to be both serious and ironic. Right? This is the nature of, of Stubb that you can't, um, position yourself clearly. You don't know if the performance is a performance or not, right? It's so, it's so overdone that it, it's, it has the effect of, of seeming like uh, it's actually something super serious. But if once you say like, ah, oh, these guys are actually fascists, they're real fascists, then it just, it's like its whole structure kind of falls apart. Um, Cause you have to maintain this kind of deadpan uh, irony alongside of it for it to, to work, which is the same thing that you get with pretty good poetry. So I talk about that cause that film is from 1990, that this is a kind of uh, nostalgia or a kind of, um, you know, mourning the end of this underground culture that was, uh, um, you know, no longer really feasible uh, during Perestroika, um, and uh, yeah, and, but otherwise, you know, I, I looked at some contemporary textbooks um, in Russia and how they. It's interesting that you'll find little fragments of the old Stalinist discourse sometimes appearing in schools today, like with just the the memory of these phrases was so ingrained in people over the years that uh, they kind of just appear unattributed. Um, in contemporary textbooks without any kind of consciousness of, the, of their Stalinist context. Um, but uh, but I, I, I generally, my, my look at uh, contemporary Russian textbooks suggests that they are, they're not, at least when I was doing it, this was during the kind of the mini-thaw that you had in, in the Medvedev presidency, uh, they weren't um, pursuing this kind of hybrid temporal structure anymore, um, that it was pretty monumentalist. Um, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, and I would be interesting to go back and see if anything's changed. Cause I know they've, they've recently um, been redoing a lot of textbooks again, uh, most notably in history, but uh, it'd be interesting to see if they've, if their approach to literature has changed with the new kind of radicalization you've been getting in, in Russian uh, politics. But. And what are you working on at the moment? Do you continue to work on Pushkin, or are you doing a different project altogether? Uh, I have a couple things going on simultaneously um, now, but my biggest project is actually quite similar to the Pushkin project, but it's about uh, Zoya Kosmodemianskaya. Um, so it's another kind of uh, cultural... Um, um, analysis of a kind of icon um, that uh, was celebrated specifically, but this time moving forward and, and looking at the war um, and a little bit more on how, uh, you know, this image of a, of a militant uh, um, was kind of cleansed and domesticated after the war. Uh, specifically in terms of gender. So Zoya Kosmogianskaya becomes this, even though she has this uh, androgynous kind of Joan of Arc uh, quality uh, in the original um, uh, representations of her, she increase, is increasingly feminized as, as time goes on. Uh, she becomes this kind of disciplinary tool rather than a, 
uh, kind of uh, model of of uh, the ecstasy of, of of giving yourself to the cause, that kind of thing. Um, and then in that in that project, I also bring it up to the contemporary moment. Uh, probably about half the book is going to be about uh, contemporary attitudes towards towards the figure of of Kuzmyanska in the war and the image of the Soviet militants. So I have. I, so I went around Russia and interviewed all sorts of people who are um, who are the sort of uh, memory keepers who you know uh, maintain museums dedicated to Kosmodemyanska or write about her still or um, you know work in archives um, and so on uh, and interviewing them about their you know their feelings about uh, contemporary Russia and 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 whether or not the this image of Zoya is still relevant or, or why it's not relevant, what has changed and things like that. Uh, so I, I talked to those people in the one and then I did a, a, some projects with some contemporary leftist uh, uh, artists in, in Russia about Zoya Kosmodemyanska where they are kind of, you know, they want, many of them want to identify with her, uh, to identify with this militant uh, image, um, but they're nervous because of the, 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 not just the the way the Soviet Union used used images like this, but specifically the the contemporary moment in Russia where the war has become this um, this very uh, um, you know it's become the foundation of society in many ways, and and it's the uh, used as as how you define who your enemies and who your friends are and things like that. Um, so yeah, so that's my main project. I'm, I'm, I mean, I I'm still I write articles. Um, when I can about Pushkin's own works, uh, usually in terms of uh, intertextual um, things, either Pushkin reworking things from the, the Western tradition, or may, or sometimes uh, people who come after Pushkin, <coughs> kind of uh, manipulating his um, images and motifs to, uh, in different ways. Uh, and I, you know, I I work a bit on contemporary Russian poetry and, and um, I've been, done some other contemporary Russian art um, stuff. I have, uh, I've been translating this, this poet Galina Rimbu uh, for a couple of years now and her, the translations have been really popular and published in a lot of different places. And I just got an offer to do, a, to put it all together into a book. Um, Congratulations. So that's pretty that sounds terrific. Yeah. So got a lot going on. Uh, so yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's the bulk of it right now. Trying to, uh, just trying to keep my head above water with all these different things. Well, I wish you the best of luck with all of your projects and thank you very much for being with us today on New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Mm -hmm, my pleasure. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Brooks-Plant, author of Greetings Pushkin, Stalinist Cultural Politics and the Russian National Bard. Please join us again in two weeks for a new episode of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And until then, this was your host, Alga Brenninger. Take care. <laughs>